Wow, what a great closing line there. Rise up and rejoice. Our Lord lives. And that's what today is all about. Today is about us just rising up to rejoice in the fact that Jesus is alive and the difference that that makes for every single one of us. So here's been my prayer uh, leading into this weekend and Easter celebration is that what Paul said in Philippians 3.10 would become a reality for us. And that is that he talks about knowing the power of his resurrection. See, Easter's not just about remembering the resurrection. It's not just about believing that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. I mean, that's all important stuff. But it's about making his story our story. It's about experiencing that, the power of the resurrection in our own lives. See, I, I don't know about you, but I remember what it was like to be dead in sin. I remember what it was like to be empty, to be searching, to realize that there had to be something more and trying to fill that with different things that just didn't work. I know what it's like to be brought from death to life. His story has become my story. And I know that his story has become many of your story. And I believe through the course of this weekend that his story is going to become a story for the first time for some of you. And I'm excited to see what God will do there. But uh, we have the opportunity to come and celebrate the, the impact and the power the resurrection has in our lives. I've recently uh, started reading good little book that Jed recommended to me, actually. It's a book by Timothy Keller called Hope in Times of Fear. And this is one of the quotes from that book. He said, the Bible's startling message is that when Jesus rose, he brought the future kingdom of God into the present. It is not here fully, but it is here substantially. And Christians live an impoverished life if they do not realize what is available to them. I believe that to be true. If you identify yourself as a follower of Christ, but you're not really living in the power of the resurrection, you're living an impoverished life. If you haven't yet come to know Christ in a personal way, you're missing out on on what God has created you for, and certainly that leads to an impoverished life. And so uh, we have reason to be passionate today. We have reason to be excited about what this day represents and and how it impacts our lives. But uh, one of the reasons that I'm so excited to be able to share a message with you today uh, is because we're going to look at an individual from the Bible who messed up really bad. And I wonder if there's anybody among us, can I be the first one to raise my hand, to say, I've messed up really bad, and I'm thankful that in spite of my failure, that, that there is hope. That the resurrection means there's hope in spite of what we've done. The guy that we're going to look at today, his name was Simon, but you and I know him as Peter. And he failed really big time. And yet things turned out okay for him. He ended up being the leader of the early church. He ended up being uh, somebody that we look back upon as a great example of who a Christian should be. But it wasn't always that way for Peter. And so let's find out what he was like when he first was introduced to Jesus. John chapter 1, the very first chapter of John's gospel, we're introduced to Peter. Let me back up just a little bit from that point and start reading in verse 35. It says the next day John, this is talking about John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. The next day John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you'll see. 
So they went and they saw where he was staying and they spent that day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who had heard what John had said and had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, We have found the Messiah, that is the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. Now, if we understand what's going on here, this passage should blow our minds because this is the first thing Jesus says to Simon that we know is Peter. He says, your name right now is Simon, but I'm going to give you a new name. I'm going to call you Peter. And the word Peter or Cephas is the Aramaic, Peter the Greek, that means rock. And so what he's doing here is he is renaming him. Now, do we see the rock up there? Not because he looked like that. That wasn't the reason why Jesus renamed him Rock. Jesus named him Rock because of who he would become. Now, this is so phenomenal because this is anything but who Peter was at this time. Peter was that guy that was a loose cannon. He was the guy you never knew what he was going to say. You never knew what he was going to do. I mean, he was anything but a rock. And some of you are like, that's me. And Peter's in the room like, yeah, I just, you know, I'm kind of just over here one minute and over there the next minute and just kind of back and forth or maybe you know somebody like that Jesus knew that that's who Peter was up to that point and yet he still said he looked at him and he says you know what I'm going to tell you who you are not based on what I see right now but based on what's going to happen after the resurrection after I change your life this is who you're going to be and I love that so much because it tells me that I'm not stuck with the identity of who I am or who I was, but that when Jesus brings new life to us, he says, I'm going to give you a new name. I'm going to make you into a new creation that may be totally different from who you are right now. And so that brings hope and that brings encouragement uh, to us this this Easter. Uh, Well, Peter wasn't always that way, and I want to look at a few examples just in order for us to really fully appreciate the transformation that took place in Peter's life. And let's start with... uh, what happened when Jesus had just finished feeding the 5,000. If you recall that story, they originally were going to get away. They got there, all the people were there, Jesus fed them. But then he sends the disciples on ahead of him in the boat to cross over the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus is going to spend a good portion of the night praying and just communing with God. The disciples are out on the water. They're in a boat. It's a very windy night. Weather's a little bit difficult, so they're struggling to get across the, uh, the water, you know, rowing themselves over there. Not an easy thing to do in difficult weather. And Jesus sees them and he sees them struggling. And he does something. And I just can't help, just maybe because of the way I think, but I can't help but to wonder if Jesus chuckled to himself a little bit when he thought about what he was about to do because he went out to them walking on the water. And I just wonder, did anybody recently play a practical joke on Jesus thinking, we got you? And he's like, oh, no, you don't know what's coming now. And he walks out next to them in the middle of the night on the water and freaks them out, scares them flat to death. Now, that probably wasn't going on. That's probably just my sick mind of thinking what might have happened. But what I do know is that Jesus walked out on the water. And we do know from Scripture that they were terrified, that they thought it was a ghost. And they cried out in fear. And Jesus said, don't be afraid. It is I. And then who speaks up? Peter. Because Peter's that guy, right? And Peter speaks up and he says, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come out with you onto the water. And it was, and he did. 
And so Peter gets out of the boat and starts walking on the water. An amazing thing that happened. But then Peter kind of comes to his senses, you know, because he can bounce back and forth from place to place. And Peter kind of realizes what's going on, and he begins to panic, and he starts to sink. Jesus reaches out, and he saves him. One example of how Peter can just be, you know, one extreme to the other. Another example was when Jesus was teaching his disciples a lesson not long before his crucifixion about servant leadership, and he was going to wash their feet. And he was going from person to person, and Peter was the one that spoke up and said probably what everybody else was thinking. But when Jesus came to him, he said, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus said, yes. And Peter says, no way. He says, you'll never wash my feet. Now, I understand where Peter's coming from here, right? The master should not be the one washing the, the feet of the disciples. And so I, I get that. Well, Jesus says, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Well, then his response is, well, Lord, then not just, my, not just my feet, but my head and my hands as well. Peter's just, I mean, just all over the place. Jesus is explaining to his disciples what's going to happen after his death. And they're still not getting in. And granted, we have the perspective of looking back on it. And they didn't have that at that time. And so we need to cut them a little bit of slack for not maybe understanding all of that at the time. But Jesus is explaining that he's going to die. Peter pulls Jesus aside and rebukes him and says, this will never happen. Now let me just tell you, it's probably not a good idea to pull Jesus aside and try to correct him for something that he said. But Peter did that. This is Peter. This is the rock. And Jesus says to Peter, uh, get behind me, Satan. You remember that? I mean, that, that was pretty strong rebuke that he gave back to him. Uh, then Jesus is having uh, his final uh, time with his disciple on the, on the night that, that he was arrested. And they finish this meal together, and Jesus lets them know that uh, they are all going to disown him. They're all going to deny that they know him. And then Peter, again, is the one who speaks up. And Peter says, Lord, even if everybody else denies you, or even if I have to die with you, I would never do that. I will never disown you. And Jesus replies to him and he says, I tell you that before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Well, Peter meant what he said, I believe. He said, I'm willing to die with you. I'm willing to do anything to defend you. And so when the soldiers came to arrest Jesus, we see Peter living out what he said he would do because he takes his sword out and attacks the servant of the high priest, takes a swipe at him and actually cuts off his ear. Jesus rebukes Peter for that. He says, put your sword back. And remarkably, by the way, just a small detail that not a lot of, uh, doesn't spend a lot of time on it, but Jesus takes the ear and, and heals it, puts his ear back on. Can you imagine that scene? Well, it's just total chaos. The disciples all flee. They all take off in different directions. And so not long after that, Peter then goes back to the place where Jesus was arrested. And this is where it really gets bad for Peter, because everything up to this point, I'm thinking you could explain in terms of, well, Peter meant well. He just, you know, he just wasn't real stable in the things that he did. But now something happens that I don't think we can explain it away by saying, well, Peter meant well. Because he's outside uh, in this courtyard where Jesus has been taken and a servant girl comes up to him by the fire, and you can imagine uh, it's dark. 
So just in the firelight, it's probably a little bit hard to see, and she's looking at him, and she says, you're one of his disciples. To which Peter denies and says, I don't know what you're talking about. He moves locations to another spot. The same thing happens again. Another servant girl comes up to him and says, I, I, I recognize you. You were one of his disciples. And again, he denies it. Now, keep in mind that Peter had extra reason to be very nervous if they figured out who he was because he's the guy that attacked and cut off the ear of the servant of the high priest. So he's trying to save his own hide here a little bit. A third time, several people approach him and they say, hey, you're, you're one of his disciples. And this third time, it says that, G, that, that, that Peter called down curses and said, I don't even know what you're talking about. Now, most likely what was happening here is he's calling down curses on Jesus. This is a way of saying, let me prove to you that I am not one of this man's disciples. And in that day, in that culture, where loyalty was such a big deal, it was a culture of shame and honor, nobody who was a true disciple would ever call down curses upon their master. And this was the, the one thing that Peter could do to definitively show, I don't know him, I'm not associated with him in any way. And right when he does that, what happens? The rooster crows. And he's reminded of what Jesus had said, that before the rooster crows, you will deny three times that you know me. Now Luke's gospel adds a detail here. Um, it says that, that when Jesus was apparently close enough to Peter to actually hear what was going on, because it says that after Peter called these curses down and denied Jesus, that Jesus turned and he looked at him. And that just makes my knees weak to think about that. To think about denying Jesus in such a way as that, and then Jesus turns and looks at him. Now, you know, one time, one, one denial, maybe we could write that off and say, you know, he panicked, he didn't know what to do. Maybe a second time, but a third time, and he calls down curses upon his master. This is more than just a, a little slip up. This is disowning Jesus in a way that to Peter must have seemed unforgivable at the time. So why in the world would Jesus, when he first met Peter, say, you're Simon, son of John, but, but you're going to be named Peter. You're going to be called the rock. Did he just misjudge his character? Did he not really know what he was dealing with? No, Jesus knew all of this, right? I mean, he predicted, Jesus, he predicted that Peter would fall away from him. None of this came as a surprise to Jesus, which, by the way, it doesn't come as a surprise to him when we fail either. And yet Jesus still said to Peter, you are Peter, you are the rock. I wonder what was going through Peter's mind at that point. The Bible doesn't give us a lot of detail, but I mean, think about all that he had been through. He had, and the rest of the disciples, they had lived with Jesus, they had, they had eaten with him, they had uh, ministered with him, they had done everything. With Jesus, and now Jesus is brought away and, and he's crucified. What must have been going through Peter's mind when he saw Jesus die? When he saw them you know, taking his body down off the cross, laying his dead body in a tomb, and Peter's thinking, everything that I have worked for these last three years, everything that I had hoped for, all of that's gone now, and, and all I have left is the memory of how I failed in that last moment when I had an opportunity to stand up for my Jesus. I didn't do it. And now there's no hope. 
there's no way to make that right because Jesus is gone. He's dead. Well, that's why the resurrection story is so powerful. Let's turn over to John's gospel and read what came next. John chapter 20. This is where, thankfully, the story doesn't end for Peter or for us. There's so much hope here. John 20, starting in verse 1, says, Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Okay, so add this piece to the puzzle. <laughs> you're Peter. You're, you're, you're just you know, sitting in this failure, this hopelessness. You go to the tomb, and it's empty. Now, what's starting must be going through his mind at this point. He sees the strips of linen, which, by the way, probably were blood-stained, and it would have been easy to identify because they had been used to wrap around Jesus' head and his body. Those are left in the tomb. And Peter, I think, is still trying to process this. Well, let's continue on because Mary, who went to the tomb first, was still outside. It says that, that uh, Peter and probably John, who's the other one who's talking about here, I think, they went back with the rest of the disciples. Mary is still there. And then it says that Mary saw someone behind her in verse 15. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. So now Peter gets this account from Mary that Jesus is alive. And I wonder if he's starting to feel like there is some hope. But I also wonder if Peter was hearing the voice of condemnation in his head. I wonder if he was hearing that voice that says, You have messed up so badly that there is no hope for you. There is absolutely no way that things can ever be made right. Anybody heard that voice recently? Maybe even this morning? You know that voice that says, you're a failure, you're, you're, you're never going to be able to do anything, you're never going to accomplish anything, you've messed up so bad, you don't count for anything. Sometimes it is a voice inside of our heads. Sometimes, sadly, it's a physical voice. It may be a spouse, it could be a parent, it could be a, a coach, a teacher, or somebody that just tears you down. There's a lot of power in that if you listen to that voice. 
I wonder if Peter was tempted to listen to that voice that said, even if Jesus is alive, you have messed up so badly that for you, there's no hope. Maybe there's hope for everybody else because they weren't the ones who denied Jesus, but for you, there's no hope. Well, later that day, Peter and the other disciples are together and Jesus shows up in their midst. Miraculously, the, the resurrected Christ just shows up. All of them are together except for Thomas. And a week later, it says that they were all together with Thomas. And you remember Thomas was, I won't believe unless I see the, the, the imprints in his hand from the nails and his, uh, the hole in his side and all that. Well, Thomas, a week later, gets to see Jesus and he says, Go ahead, put your fingers in here and put your hand on my side and you see, stop doubting and believe. And so they all see that Jesus is alive. But at this point, Peter still has not been able to settle the issue of what do I do since I have failed Jesus so miserably. You ever been in a situation where you've wronged someone terribly and you haven't had an opportunity to make things right or you haven't had an opportunity to talk through that? That is incredibly awkward especially when you're the one who has done wrong. And up to this point, it's been a week since Jesus has been raised from the dead. And as far as we know, there's been no individual, at least it's not been recorded, no private conversation directly between Peter and Jesus addressing what Peter has done. So that's where we get in John chapter 21. In John 21, uh, post-resurrection, but Peter says, I'm going to go fishing. And some of the disciples says, well, they, they tell him, we'll go with you. So they go out, they're fishing overnight. The next morning, Jesus is standing um, on the side of, of the, uh, the shore there. And he calls out to them. They don't recognize who he is. And he calls out to them and he tells them, hey, if you'll throw your, your nets over on the other side of the boat, you'll catch some fish. Now, this is what's important to know about this, what happened here. This was not the first time that this has happened with Peter. In fact, when Jesus called Peter in the first place, Luke chapter 5, it says that he was out, he was teaching a crowd, he used Peter's boat to put out away from the shore, using the water kind of as a microphone to amplify his voice, and then once he was finished teaching the crowds, he told Peter, who had been fishing the whole night before, they had put their nets away, they had already cleaned up their nets, and he said, put your net down for a catch. And Peter was hesitant to do it, but he did it, and he caught you know, just that so, so many fish that they couldn't even bring the nets in. It was so full. That was the first time that Peter recognized who Jesus was. Was when Jesus gave him a miraculous catch of fish. Well, it happens a second time. They throw their nets over the side of the boat. So he does it when, when he calls Peter the first time. And he does it the second time when he's about to reinstate Peter into the, the position that he wants him to have. And it happens, and it says that John recognized who it was. Immediately it clicked this time. They throw the nets over, and the fish start filling it up. And John's like, whoop, I've seen this before. I know who that is over there. That's Jesus. And he, and he shouts, and he says, it's the Lord. And you remember what Peter does? Peter grabs his cloak, jumps into the water. He can't wait for the boat to get to shore. He jumps in the water and begins to make his way to shore because he wants so desperately to, to see Jesus. And I'm wondering at this point if it's starting to click, if maybe there's some hope. Maybe there's an opportunity for things to be made right in my relationship with Christ. John 21, starting in verse 15. Let's read what happened. It says, when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, 
Do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him a third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Three times Jesus asked him, do you love me? Three times Peter had denied Jesus, and he has an opportunity to reaffirm his love three separate times. See, I don't believe Jesus is, is taking the knife and twisting it here. I think what he's doing is, like a surgeon, he's using the knife to cut away uh, what needs to be cut away in order to get down to the root of the issue. He's helping Peter come to grips with the fact that he has failed. And we need to come to grips with that first. But then he helps him understand but here's what I have for you, Peter, because every time, did you notice, he says either feed my sheep or feed my lambs. Every time. He's not saying, Peter, after you prove yourself once again and you show that you can be trusted, I'm going to reinstate you into a position of leadership. What he says to him is, Peter, I want you to feed my lambs because let me remind you uh, who I called you to be. Interesting, by the way, that at first he uses Simon here again. But his, he's Peter. He's the one who would become the rock if he listened to Jesus. One, just a couple of last verses. And we'll conclude with this. Verse 18. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. When you're old, you'll stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. See, the bottom line for, for Peter was this. Jesus was saying, if you're willing to follow me and, and forsake everything, then I'm going to make you that rock that I told you you would become. But it's going to require a life of sacrifice. It's going to require literally that you die a martyr's death for me. This is not going to be something that is comfortable. It's not going to be something that is easy. Uh, but it is something that, that he could make happen and only he could for Peter. I'm encouraged when I see that because it tells me that God has a plan for every one of us that is so much bigger than ours. And it's so much better than the plan that we have. The question is this, how are you going to respond to Jesus? I told you there were two times when Jesus performed a miraculous catch of fish for Peter. The first time when he did this, Peter's response to Jesus was, away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. He didn't feel worthy to even be in the presence of Jesus because he was aware of his own sin. The second time it happened, post-resurrection, was Peter aware of his sin at that point? Probably even more so. He had just come off of denying Jesus and yet his response was totally different. This time, he jumps into the water to get to Jesus as fast as he can. See, in one case, he's running away from Jesus. He doesn't feel worthy to be in his presence. In the other, he's running toward Jesus. The real question is this. How will you respond to Jesus? Let me share with you one more quote from the book that I mentioned earlier that I thought just hit the nail right on the head with this. Keller said that the claims of Jesus, if they are truly heard for what they are, never evoke moderate 
response. Jesus claimed to be the Lord of the universe who had come to earth to give himself for us so that we could live for him. That is a call for total allegiance. You will have to either run away screaming in anger and fear or run toward him with joy and love and fall down at his feet and say, I am yours. Nothing in the middle makes any sense. Unless you are running away from him or running toward him, you actually don't know who he really is. Unless you're running away from him or running toward him, you don't know who he is. See, the resurrected Christ demands that type of a response. It demands that we either run away in anger and fear and say, I don't want to have anything to do with you, or we run toward him and we, we just kneel before him and we say, I'm yours completely. I suspect that there are some of you that have been running away from Jesus for a long time. And you know what? That's a legitimate response. It is. But it certainly isn't the best response. The best response would be one of surrender. It would be one to say, I want to receive what you want to give to me. Why in the world would we run away from the one who wants to grant us eternal life, from the one who died in our place to pay for our sins, the one who gives us hope even when we failed really, really bad? Don't run away from him any longer. Maybe for some, for the first time, you need to run toward him. And you're ready. And you feel that stirring in, in your spirit today. It's like, man, I, I know this. I've been running, and I'm tired of running, and I need to run not away from Jesus, but toward him. And if that's the case, I just want to lead you through a prayer that you can pray. This, this is no magic formula. The words really don't matter as much as the condition of the heart. But sometimes it helps to have something to guide us. And so I'll put the words of a prayer on the screen for us as we pray through this, just to help you. And you can pray this along. I'll, I'll just pray it with you. But if your heart's desire is to run to Jesus and to surrender your heart to Him today, then just pray this prayer with me. Let's bow our heads. If you know today that you're ready to receive Christ for who He is, the one who died and rose again, and the one who wants to be Lord of your life, then I want you to pray this with me. Jesus, I know that I've messed up a lot. I confess that I'm sinful and that I need your forgiveness. I believe that you died on the cross to pay for my sins and that you rose again to give me eternal life. Right now, I turn away from my sins and I put my trust in you as my Lord. Thank you for bringing me into your family. Amen.